Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes psychotherapist and author Dr. Tina Payne Bryson to the show for part one of their two-part conversation about the power of showing up. Part two will be released on Tuesday, August 17th. Hello, everyone out there, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Buckwalter, joining you from Chaddock, and I am super excited to tell you a bit about the guest I am interviewing today. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. She's the author of Bottom Line for Baby and co-author with Dan Siegel of the New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated into over 50 languages. She's also written Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up. She is the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary practice in Southern California. Dr. Bryson keynotes conferences and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world. And she often consults with businesses and other organizations. She's an LCSW and a graduate of Baylor University with a PhD from USC. And you can learn more about her at tinabryson.com and we'll be sure to let you know other places you can find her at the end of the interview. So just a bit of how I got the idea to, to reach out to Dr. Bryson. I've read her previous works, but the latest book that I read of hers, The Power of Showing Up, had such an emphasis on attachment and how attachment impacts parenting and child development that after reading it i just thought i have got to get her on the attachment theory and action podcast if at all possible and i am delighted that she agreed to join us so stay tuned dr bryson will be with us in just a second So, Tina, thank you so, so much for joining us here today on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really, it's one of my very favorite things to talk about. So I'm honored to be here. Oh, that's so good. Good, good, good. Well, I know it's going to be a really good conversation that our listeners are really going to appreciate. So before you got on with us, I mentioned your credentials and your background and all of your books, but I also like to start out with people I speak with on the podcast asking, so that's your formal bio, informally, how did you end up doing this work? What drew you to it? What, what was it? Well, I've always, I mean, from the time I was little, I was always interested in ideas and particularly around how people work and how relationships work and all of that. But, you know, I came to this work, not with, with the plan. I mean, I really, um, my plan was to be a stay-at-home mom. That was what I wanted to do my whole life. And so I waited a long time before my husband and I had kids so that we could afford for me to stay home. We were really intentional about that. 
And we moved to California where I'm from. Um, and uh, my husband is an English professor. And we learned very quickly that we couldn't survive on his income. And so he said, hey, we've got to change the plan. You've got to go to work. And at that point, I had a, um, a master's in, in social work. And I said, well, if I have to work, um, I have to get a PhD really fast so that I can teach because I want to teach. And so I started grad school with an 18 month old. Oh my goodness. And, um, and the very first, uh, I was in a graduate program that had five students. And so it was very in-depth, very relational. And um, my first assignment was to um, pick a big theory and teach it to my classmates. And I had been reading a, a little bit about attachment as it relates to parenting. Um, but unfortunately, what I was primarily reading was about attachment parenting, which, as you know, is very different from yes. science and, and such a misnomer, um, because even if you don't do any of the things attachment parenting, um, you know, checklist says, you can still have children who are beautifully attached to you. And just because you do a checklist of behaviors does not mean you have children who are securely attached to you. So anyway, I have had familiarity with attachment, but I really didn't know what it was. And so, um, and it, which is unfortunate because I already had a master's in social work and I had not been exposed to this yet. Yes. So um, I picked attachment theory and science and I could not, it, it was like, I was trying to drink from a fire hose. I could not get enough of it. And around that time, I heard Dan Siegel speak for the first time as well. And when he started talking about um, interpersonal neurobiology and the impact that relationships have on the mind and the brain, I became really thirsty for that as well. So I began studying with him um, in addition to my PhD program. And as I had two more children, I have three boys. Um, I was steeped in the science of attachment, both from Dan Siegel, from an interpersonal neurobiology perspective, and from everything I was focused on in my PhD program from that point forward. Um, and so I just was applying it every day in the trenches of parenting. And then I was teaching it to other parents and doing my own work at the same time in terms of trying to make sense of my own story. And just another quick little aside, Karen, yes. when I learned about the AAI, um, um, and I was studying with Dan um, and all these categories of attachment. It was really impactful for me personally. But here's the funny thing. So I was having dinner with my dad and his parents, and I was throwing out some of the AAI questions. And, um, you know, I was getting really textbook answers where I could pretty easily trace sort of a, a family tree of attachment patterns. Um, and it was very liberating and interesting and actually very funny too, that I was, you know, <laughs> yes. pulling this stuff out of family dinners, but yes. it was really liberating because then I could see this is how, this is the legacy I come from and how their brains were wired um, and what that meant for me and the kind of parent I wanted to be and how I was going to wire my children's brains as well. So I fell in love with attachment science um, yes. and, but it was never sort of, you know, my goal to ever write books or to teach about attachment or anything. It just happened because I fell in love with it and became passionate about it and believe it's one of the most important things all humans should know about regardless of our, our profession. Yes. Oh, that is such a great story. And I have to say the next time, uh, so I get, Teased because whenever people would travel with me in, in a car, my coworkers that I'd be listening to like lifespan learning lecture first on CDs, now it's MP3, uh, right. the whole attachment section when Mary made and Eric Hesse did their AAI stuff. And it was always like, if you travel with Karen, you have to listen to educational CDs <laughs> the whole time. So I'm going to say, well, Tina Payne Bryson, she asked people the AAI questions at dinner. So exactly. exactly. 
exactly. So you guys need to quit teasing me. Exactly. <laughs> but I really understand that igniting of passion. I mean, I have a podcast right now that we're on called Attachment Theory in Action and linking that science to practice application, you know, because I think so often it's been stuck over in academia and there hasn't, of course, this is getting much better. And I know you and, and, and um, others are working on that, but it's like you said, it's so important for everyone to understand this at some level. It really become, it's really a primary lens with which I see the world. And I'll say that, you know, I tend to, um, I, I can easily be critical of other people and having this attachment lens allows me to get to and stay in compassion for others in such um, an important way for me. Um, so, you know, and, and really, I mean, I, I'm thinking about attachment patterns and I love trashy TV. Like I love reality shows and, and dramas. Like I love all of that. It's a great escape for me because I'm very cerebral and, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about attachment patterns of characters on TV. And I'm like, I wonder if the writers <laughs> knew about attachment. So I'm a total attachment nerd, Karen, but I, I do think it's, it, it really is a lens with which we can understand ourselves and others yes. um, in such a profound way. Yes, yes. Well, and so in in starting to talk specifically about the power of showing up, uh, the, the book uh, amongst several that we want to really hone in on today is, is this one. Um, and I was, as I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking of how you and Dan Siegel boil it down so basically to its parental presence, you know, and thinking about just like you said earlier about the attachment parenting checklist, you could do all those things. And in a very, I don't know if I should say instrumental way, but in a way that you're not present. So could you share with listeners just to start out like big picture, that bottom line, that, that, that point that you wanted to get across to readers, it's not, how do you say it? It's simple, but it's not easy. Yes. That presence. So let, let's start there. Cause I just think that that's such a beautiful grounding statement. I think that, you know, we live in a world full of distraction and not just external distraction, a lot of internal distraction. Uh, we live in a culture where um, we are kind of given a lot of messaging about staying away from feelings, right? Um, numbing feelings, dismissing feelings, distracting ourselves from feelings. Um, and and from, from thinking about a child rearing perspective, you know, so much of what's out there about parenting is about how to get your kid to stop crying or stop tantruming um, or stop acting out, you know, those kinds of things. And really, this is, it, it's, it's such a, a liberating concept when we think about how, and it can be parenting relationships, it can be romantic relationships, it can be friendships, um, it can be your own relationship with your parent, that we don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be perfect, not even close. We don't have to know what to do or what to say. 
all we have to do, what we, what is always kind of a North star for us is to show up in the moment and be present. Mm -hmm. And for me, like, I remember just as a really specific practical example of this, I remember a time and I got so much better at this as I continued to have my kids, as I was steeping more and more in the science and, and doing my own work. But you know, I remember with my third born, he was probably eight or so. And he was, he was really upset that he didn't get to stay up later with his bigger brothers. And they had some friends over and it was really unfair that he had to go to sleep. And I'm very, um, very militant about sleep in our family because we know it helps the brain be more integrated. And it's a huge reduction um, of mental illness if we are good at sleeping, et cetera. Yes. So yes, I'm as, with a, you. as a clinician I'm with myself, you. you know, yeah, nature and sleep are the two <laughs> things that we just start with, right? Right. Um, so, so he was, he was really upset. He was angry. I, had, I was sitting in bed with him with my, you know, with all the books and we're about to have this cuddly bedtime, but no, he was kicking his feet and thrashing his body like a fish out of water. And he was like, it's not fair. You're so mean. And he's, you know, he's coming at me and he's really dysregulated. And as knowing what I I know I'm also going, okay, his nervous system is in a reactive state right now. He's not receptive. He can't really hear logic or whatever. Um, he, when he's as an attachment researcher, I know that when he's in distress, that's when he probably needs me the most. Right. Yeah. Um, and I'm countering my own history of, of um, avoiding dismissing attachment. So I'm going to not do that. So I've got all this stuff going, but what I came to figure out was instead of, you know, he's thrashing, he's yelling instead of throwing out a threat. Like if you don't stop, I'm going to not, I'm not going to read to you. Or instead of saying, okay, fun. If you're going to act that way, you're going to have to go to bed earlier tomorrow. Or so instead of going like down the threat path, or instead of saying, it's okay, it's okay. I'll let you stay up later. So instead of accommodating in a way that I'm fixing, or I'm trying to, um, or say, you know, Oh, let me, let me, let me get you something. Let me, let me go get you a treat or something to try and distract him from his feelings or pull him out of that state. I don't have to spend all the cognitive, attentional and emotional energy to fix or do anything. I don't even have to solve any problems. And I feel like I spent so much of my parenting just being exhausted with the attentional, emotional and cognitive energy of trying to figure out what to do in these kinds of moments. But instead, all I had to do was be present. And for me, what that typically looks like is to sit down. Um, I learned from a chaplain one time that the most important thing to do when she, she was saying that when she walks into a room with a dying person is to sit down. And she said, that's the most important thing I do because it tells the person you're important to me. I have time for you. I'm here and I'm fully, you know, listening. And so for me, what that meant in that moment is to say to JP, you're really upset. It feels so unfair. I know that's really hard to feel that, isn't it? So I'm, I'm, I'm tuning into his experience and I'm naming it. I'm, I'm helping him feel seen where he feels felt. He feels understood. My response matches his internal state. And then to just say, I'm right here with you while you're feeling that. And that's mm -hmm. it. It's so mm -hmm. simple. It's really mm -hmm. just showing up present in that moment, mm -hmm. not trying to fix or anything else. And then what's kind of amazing about that is that, um, and then I'll just, you know, I'll, 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 or I'll say, I'll listen, or I'm here or whatever. And then, you know, eventually typically he'd be like, okay, fine, just read. 
And then as I read, he would snuggle in closer and closer and his nervous system would go back into a regulated state. And at the end of that experience, after several repeated experiences like that throughout childhood, he learns his brain gets repetitions or practice going from these dysregulated states back into these regulated states, which is often what we're doing in therapy, right? right. It's helping someone go from a dysregulated state or a memory back into, you know, because they're safe enough with us and we're providing that secure attachment. But then he also learns, gosh, I, I handle those feelings of unfairness or disappointment. Like that was hard. And I, I can handle those kinds of feelings. So the way that we build resilience in our children or in our clients or in ourselves is by walking through difficult things with enough support or someone's presence. So it's really a simple idea, but it's really hard to do because again, we're so internally and externally distracted and we're so trained in our culture to fix and solve or avoid. So it's really about stopping, pausing, and just showing up in that moment, whatever that looks like. Yes. Oh, yeah, it, it is deceptively simple and then as you said there's so many factors i think that can come up in terms of our own dysregulation and of course your wonderful book that everybody has to get um (laughs) talks about our own attachment history our own attachment classifications you go over the actual adult attachment interview classifications and thinking about we are going to have inside of us uh, some of us a pull away from doing what you just said (laughs) right yeah yeah so so maybe um you could talk a little bit about that for listeners so so what what are the barriers to doing that you listen to that you hear that oh yeah that does sound okay so i don't have to think if you do a i do b and all these consequences and all this and all that and what i read in that book and what i read in this book and you know it's just being there but what 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 are the barriers to doing that Wow, we could talk. That's such an amazing question, Karen. And I don't know that anyone's ever asked me that. And I feel like you and I could talk about that for four hours. Um, The things that come to my mind immediately are for sure how our own brains are wired, right? So our own history plays into that. And, you know, I grew up with a parent who, my parents were 19 when I was born. I mean, they were not adults. They, I mean, legally they were, but their brains were not fully developed, right? And my mom um, was, did like the most important thing that I think attachment boils down to. And that is, um, you know, being present and delighting in me. Right. And she, I felt connected and protected and she, she was, she provided me with beautiful, secure attachment. And I got, I came from a long legacy on my dad's side of avoidant dismissing attachment. So, you know, I got so many messages over my growing up years from my dad and his family that, you know, when an emotion came up, um, like I would be sad about something or disappointed about something that I needed to get over it, or I needed to not be so sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was such an av- avoidance, you know, and family dinners were often about the dog and the weather. There wasn't really a, a being seen or being known. And so I have to know that part of that is how my brain is wired so that when intimacy or when uncomfortable situations come, when conflict comes up that, and I feel my nervous system get activated, my 
inborn um, adaptation to that type of attachment makes me want to make a joke, talk about the dog, avoid, you know, do all of these things. So that's just one example of how our brains are, are largely developed from repeated experiences. So if, if you've grown up in a home uh, or if you've grown up in a, with a relationship that either makes you feel um, like your emotions and your needs should not be voiced or, um, or that you can't count on anybody and that you are, this is more the avoidant pattern of attack. I mean, sorry, the um, amb- anxious ambivalent or, or um, preoccupied pattern of attachment um, is that, you know, you can't count on anybody because they may or may not be there for you. And mm-hmm. you have a lot of anxiety about whether or not people are going to show up for you. So then you cling to people, which then is self-reinforcing that, that um, pattern because people are like, Oh, you're, you've got too many needs. So back off. So these kinds of repeat experiences really impact how we process information, what we give attention to, what we pull attention away from. So our own history is a huge part of that. And of course, that's why it's always part of our ongoing process to keep being aware. And Dan Siegel has a beautiful phrase, which is without awareness, we don't have choice. But once we become aware Uh, we can start beginning to notice these patterns and make choices. I think another huge contributor besides our own history is very much tied to our own history is our own internal states in the moment, right? So, you know, there are many, many times I want to be present. I want to be that um, safe haven for my child or for my spouse, but my nervous system is revved up. My heart's beating fast. My muscles are tense. I'm angry. I'm resentful. And so... I think that's a huge thing that the attachment science world hasn't yet made fully accessible. And that's one of the things we wanted to do in the power of showing up is to talk about how we can't attune to our children's internal states if we're disconnected from our own. Yeah. And if we didn't have secure attachment growing up, that's much more likely to happen um, on a moment to moment basis. So um, really getting in tune with getting in touch with our own bodies and minds and being able to regulate those states through breath and through movement, not just top down insight based kinds of things, but more bottom up kinds of things where we're really like tending to our nervous system. Yeah. Um, and so that's key. And I, I, I think I just posted this on Instagram a couple of days ago to tell parents, I give you permission to not respond in the moment. Sometimes that's the worst time to respond to say, you know what? I need a few minutes to think about how I want to handle this, or I need to go take a break for a minute. And so that we can regulate ourselves before we step into those moments with our kids or spouses. Then the one other thing I'll mention, Karen, that I think is a huge thing is fear. I think fear, fear fear-based parenting gets in the way. And, um, and I, I would say this, even as clinicians, I know there were, I'll, I'll give a clinician example because we have given so many parent ones, but I remember particularly as a young clinician, feeling afraid that what I was doing wasn't enough or wasn't the right thing, or do I even know what I'm doing? Um, am I even helping this person? And when we are in that fear state, we really are kind of in our own, um, loop in our own minds that really blocks our ability to see and connect and attune. So I think what we need to do in those moments and and as parents, you're like, Oh, if I don't, if I don't address this behavior right now, my kid's going to be a spoiled brat. Um, and really 
Um, a lot of that is, is not true. It's not logical. It's not based in the science, but we go to these fear-based places that really pull us out of yes. being in the present moment. Yes. Yes. So, so true. And which leads, as you're saying, to an inability to create safety for the client. You know, I'm always thinking about neuroception. Like that's an incon- that's an inconvenient truth. You know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that even yeah. even if I externally can sort of be going through the motions, there's there's something that goes deeper when we're scanning for safety and feeling in our gut something about people so you know how i think how we enter that clinical room is so important the state that we enter yeah absolutely and i think you know i'm a i'm such a huge stephen porges fan and and that word neuroception um and in fact i'm talking about it a ton right now as you might imagine um and and we'll be doing a ton of professional development at schools um over the summer talking my, my main point will be about the four s's and, and from the power of showing up um and the idea yes which we will be getting to in a little while here <laughs> but i'm gonna be really i'm really focusing uh, of this last year i've spoken so much about neuroception and the need to create a neuroception of safety and that that's forget about learning forget about all the other stuff let's start yes. with neuroception for safety but when we are dysregulated or we're in fear states you know our clients our spouses our kids they pick you know we're very intuitive um yes. We, with those mirror neurons and all of that, we pick up on that. And so I think, you know, you know, it's interesting. I, um, many of, you know, Lou Cozzolino, he's one of our, um, you know, interpersonal neurobiology gurus and a, a Pepperdine professor. And he's written quite a bit about attachment. Um, and, uh, he was at my house, uh, with my, my family was here and we were eating breakfast burritos on my back porch. And we were talking about attachment because the power showing up had just come out and I was talking and talking and talking and, And um, we had this beautiful, I feel like I learned so much in this conversation from him, but, but I said, Lou, how would you boil down attachment? What would you say about what it really is about? And he said, it's regulating the, uh, the biophysiological states of the other. Hmm. And when you look at Dan Siegel's work and he talks about what, how, what actually emotion is and emotion is often, it's very different when you look at it from a, um, a, a, when you really break it down, it's not just about like pockets of feelings like sad, happy. Emotion right. is really primarily what orients our attention and how our system organizes itself. I mean, it's really yes. that fundamental. And so, so then I asked Lou, I said, okay, so if the primary job of attachment is to regulate the physiobiological states of the other, emotion would have to fit in with that. And he's like, yeah. So it's, so now I say our primary job then is to regulate the physiological, biological and emotional states of the other. And and we see how that plays out with infants. Right. And that's just physical comforts. And then developmentally all the way to, if we're working with adult clients that, you know, as they are getting in touch with their internal states um, and some of them learning how to do that for the first time. Yeah. That's really our goal as the attachment figure in the room is to give them repeated experiences of feeling emotions, feeling sensations in their body, getting connected to themselves 
while they have that neuroception of safety. And that's what we're doing with our tone of voice, you know, our facial expressions, our presence is we're creating the safety for them to go to those places so that we can really expand their window of tolerance when it comes to doing that work. Yes. Yes. It, it, uh, reminds me of some of Bowlby's writings where he said the therapist role is analogous to that of the mother. We, we are the safe haven and secure base to explore new behaviors. You know, we create that yeah. safety. So, wow, this is, the time is really flying by. Um, I want to thank you for the first part of this conversation. And I'm so excited. Listeners, we are going to be back for a part two. We're going to get into some of the wonderful practical ways that um, Tina's book talks about like okay let's get down to nuts and bolts you know more more how can i remember this and think about this and the four s's so please join us for part two next week and thank you for this discussion so far tina it's been fabulous thank you karen it's been so fun thank you for joining us for this edition of the attachment theory in action podcast Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.